Hey folks, welcome to the Aspire Natural Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Gerstmar. At Aspire Natural Health, we are experts at treating gut dysfunctions, autoimmune diseases, and other hard-to-treat cases. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you a range of interesting, informative, and yes, entertaining podcasts. All right, folks, without further ado, let's get to the show. So today we're going to talk about diabetes, which is a huge issue, something all of us are going to see a lot of. And the current projections are that diabetes alone, without taking into account autoimmune disease, cancer, heart disease, uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, any of the other big medical issues that we're seeing in our in our in people in the in our country in the in the world, just diabetes alone, the care and the cost associated with diabetes is set to bankrupt the entire U.S. economy. So it is a huge expensive and troublesome issue. Now we're going to talk about the different types of diabetes because it's important to remember that the word diabetes um, you know broadly covers a range of conditions and you know the treatment while having similarities looks a little bit different between those. So conventionally there are considered to be two types of diabetes right? Known as type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. So I'm going to talk about, let me see here, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, what I consider the nine different types of diabetes. But it's important to remember that the conventional system really only considers two types of diabetes, type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. Okay. So what brings all of these different types of diabetes together is essentially the end pathology or the end problem of diabetes, which they all share in common, which is high blood sugar. So just really quickly, blood sugar is one of the primary sources of fuel for our bodies. And if we don't have it, we die because none of the systems of our body are able to function. So we need our blood sugar to be within a stable range, kind of like Goldilocks again. Too little is a problem, hypoglycemia. Too much is a problem, hyperglycemia or essentially diabetes, and just right is where we want it to be. You know, too low of a blood sugar will kill you quickly. You'll go into a, if it goes low enough, you'll go into a coma, your brain will stop functioning and you'll die. The problem with, and the body is very exquisitely tuned to avoid and alert you when your blood sugar goes low. So we have patients who come to us complaining of hypoglycemia. They'll talk about, you know, ravenous hunger, anxiety, shaking, sweating, feeling like they're going to pass out. All of those symptoms are common for hypoglycemia because the body is sending emergency alarm signals to say, get your blood sugar up or you could go into a coma and die. The problem is those alarm systems don't exist for high blood sugar because in the short term, days, weeks, possibly even months, nothing much really happens. You're not at risk of dying unless your blood sugar goes to extremely high levels and kind of turns your blood into syrup and everything, right? So people can run around, walk around with high blood sugars for decades 
not knowing that they have a problem. But those high blood sugars cause will slowly but steadily cause damage to your tissues, to your body, right? And so we look at the complications of untreated diabetes, and there are really three, four, but really three areas where people notice symptoms, I guess four. The first and the most dangerous to them is your kidneys. So your kidneys are very fragile. Uh, they're very robust on some level, but on another level, they're very fragile tissues. And those high sugars over time will destroy your kidney function. And so most people undergoing dialysis, so again, dialysis is essentially hooking you up to a machine that does your kidney function for you. So it's a big, giant external kidney that you go and you sit down in the lobby or, you know, in the, the room, and it circulates all your blood through that dialysis machine and performs the function of your kidneys, right? So the problem with a lot of this is, you know, we can see some of the deterioration of kidneys on a regular blood test that doctors run, but people don't start really having symptoms until their kidney function gets pretty darn low. And that's a speaking to the resiliency of the kidneys, but it's a problem because by the time someone is saying, hey, something is really wrong, we look and we see and you don't have much kidney function left anymore and you're steps away from going into dialysis, right? The second area is your eyeballs. So your eyes are very sensitive, again, little tiny blood vessels and delicate structures. And people can, one of the complications of untreated diabetes is blindness, because essentially it damages your eyes and they start working, not working well. And then if it's left unchecked, you can go blind from it. Okay. The third area is your nerves. So again, sensitive. And that's where people complain of peripheral neuropathy. Peripheral meaning like far out on your body. Neuropathy meaning damage to your nerves. And so people will complain of numbness, tingling, pain, lack of sensation in their feet because the nerves become damaged and essentially, you know, kind of stop working. Now, if it gets worse and worse and worse, it can spread into the hands as well. But that tends to be very, very severe uh, untreated diabetes. The problem, of course, is what happens is people lose proper – so the first is that people have pain. So they're walking around with pain in their feet and legs potentially 24-7 from it. But then if it progresses further, they lose sensation in their feet. And then your feet, um, you know, are, are, are subject to a lot of wear and tear. And without proper sensation, you can't tell if your feet are in good shape or not. And what tends to happen, so the, the fourth piece, which sort of combines here, so the fourth area that is really sensitive is the inside of your blood vessels and your circulation. And so this is the reason that diabetics are at a much increased risk of heart disease, also increased risk of dementia, increased risk of a lot of things, is because their blood vessels become damaged, and then they can become plugged up or non-functional. They can have a lot of problems. Obviously, if the vessels around the heart become sufficiently damaged, then you're at risk for heart disease. If the vessels in your brain become sufficiently damaged, you're at risk for strokes. 
if the blood vessels in the small areas, like your fingertips um, and feet and everything become damaged, then you're losing blood flow to those areas. Now, a symptom that men will complain about in particular is impotence, right? Can't get an erection or are having trouble with an erection. And we see this can come from both damage to the nerves, so the nerves that feed the penis and make it work are damaged and not functioning well, and the blood vessels that feed blood to the penis can become damaged and not work well either, right? So that is sometimes a symptom you'll see guys come in, especially your guys who never, ever, ever go to the doctor, and it may have been 20 years since they've had a blood test, a physical exam, or anything. Potentially, they could have you know, diabetes for 10 or 20 years, and eventually it gets bad enough at something they care about, which is their sexual function, that they're finally like, uh, maybe I should go see a doctor about this, right? So obviously, why we're pushing for good preventative care in a regular relationship with healthcare providers. But to go back to the feet, so you have the nerves damaged, so you can't feel real well in your feet anymore, and then you have the blood vessels damaged, so you're not getting good circulation through your feet, and so people can get cuts and scratches, and they can't feel it because the nerves are damaged, and the circulation and therefore the immune function through the feet is really low, and so those cuts and scratches and nicks and bumps and everything can become infected, and their body can't treat it well, and that's why you're seeing they're at risk. You'll see you know, very advanced diabetics with they'll amputate toes, they'll amputate feet, they'll amputate legs. It's that combination of nerve damage and, and blood vessel damage, and then the, the things don't work so well. So... The central issue is high blood sugar. The central problem is that the body doesn't really have good defensive mechanisms to alert someone when their blood sugar is running high. So now we have to ask, you know, essentially, wh why can the blood sugar go high? And there are two main mechanisms behind that happening, okay? One is insulin resistance. So the person has insulin in their body, but their body no longer listens to that insulin. So you can imagine, you know, it's like you've been at a rock concert or loud sound. And your body has sort of turned down the volume in your ears and you can't hear well anymore. Well, the same can happen to the body when there's a lot of insulin for a long time that the cells begin to become insulin resistant. So the message is there, but they no longer listen to it. Right. And so insulin. So to back up a second, insulin's primary job is to essentially unlock the cells and allow blood sugar to flow into them. It also does a little bit with protein and amino acids. It's also involved with that as well. But its primary job is to reduce your blood sugar by opening up the cells and allowing the sugar to go inside of them. And so if your body is resistant to insulin, those, those insulin molecules go up to the cells to try and unlock them and allow the sugar to go in, and the cells don't pay any attention to the insulin. So they remain closed, so the blood sugar is not able to go into those cells, and the blood sugar remains high in your blood. Okay, So insulin resistance, and then we have insulin deficiency. 
right? So the other issue can be that the insulin that would be needed isn't there. And so the cells don't get the signal to allow sugar to go into them, and the sugar stays in the blood and raises the blood sugar, right? So when we look at the two forms of diabetes, we have type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. Now, most people, when they say to the, to the you know, frustration, irritation of your type 1 diabetics, most people, when they use the word diabetes, mean type 2 diabetes because it is overwhelmingly the most common type of diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance, Type 1 diabetes is insulin deficiency, okay? So type 2, they used to have these terms. They no longer have these terms. There's several other terms. So they used to call type 2 diabetes non-insulin-dependent diabetes. You are not dependent on insulin. And they used to call type 1 diabetes insulin-dependent diabetes because you are dependent on the use of insulin. They also used to call them type 1 diabetes was known as juvenile diabetes, meaning you got it when you were young. And type 2 diabetes, um, I, I actually was something, you know, uh, you know, el uh, essentially older person diabetes or elderly diabetes because, you know, 50 years ago, the people who got type 2 diabetes were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? So it was... Type 2 diabetes used to be a disease of old people, not of young people. The problem now is we have kids, you know, as young as five who are getting type 2 diabetes, and we see that type 1 diabetes can happen uh, really almost any time in someone's life, but can happen in people's 20s, 30s, 40s, even 50s. It's possible to get type 1 diabetes, okay? For example... You know, we had a gentleman in his 30s come into the practice a few weeks ago with type 1, you know, recent onset of type 1 diabetes, basically. So had been, you know, normal essentially before that and now, you know, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So type the, the, the what is underlying it is also different. So type 1 diabetes is also autoimmune diabetes because in type 1 diabetes, the body has become autoimmune against the pancreas. So your insulin is produced from your pancreas. And so if the immune system targets and begins destroying that pancreas, then eventually your pancreas can't produce enough insulin to control your blood sugar anymore. And so they have you know little to no production of insulin, and that's why they have to use... There are shots, there are, there are pumps, there are a variety of ways, but they have to inject insulin into their bodies to make up for the fact that their pancreas can't make enough insulin anymore, right? Type 1 diabetes, what used to be before insulin was invented, uh, you know, was a death sentence. You had type 1 diabetes because remember, essentially, your cell, it's like the door that allows nutrients, mostly sugar, but also amino acids and proteins, was locked without insulin. And so, you know, one of the symptoms of type uncontrolled type 1 diabetes is ravenous hunger while losing weight. So they're stuffing themselves with food and they're losing weight. 
because food goes into the digestive tract, it's digested, it's brought into the body, but then it can't actually get into the cells to fuel them. So you're starving amidst, you know, eating as much as you want, right? And I've mentioned this before, but there's a very, very disturbing trend in type 1 teenage girls called diabulimia, where they will intentionally stop taking insulin so they'll lose weight or can eat whatever they want and won't gain weight. Now, that works, but what's the consequence? Their blood sugar goes sky high because if you're eating food, <laughs> you know, it's raising your blood sugar. But if it can't go anywhere, then it's backing up and sitting in your bloodstream, and then those sky-high blood sugars cause all sorts of damage. So you can see people in their you know, 20s having to go into dialysis because their kidneys were so damaged by those high blood sugars. Or you know, we won't mention this, but if your blood sugar goes too high, there can be potentially fatal complications from it, right? Um, so type 2 diabetics on the other side uh, produce insulin, and when you measure their insulin, will tend to have too much insulin. So they'll have more insulin than someone without type 2 diabetes, but they still have high blood sugar in spite of that fact because they're, um, they are insulin resistant, not insulin deficient, right? So those are the two acknowledged types of diabetes. I'm going to lay out a few others. So again, these are not you know, you go and ask an endocrinologist or a diabetologist about it, and they, you know, may acknowledge this or they may say th those are all junk. But we, the several other types that I classify people is as there is type 1.5 diabetes. So 1.5 would be an insulin dependent diabetic who is now insulin resistant, right? So you can have both. They have to inject insulin because their pancreas doesn't make it, but because of poor diet, poor lifestyle, obesity, a variety of other factors, they've become insulin resistant as well, right? You can have type 2.5 diabetes. So this would be your insulin resistant diabetic who now, because of, you know, a lifetime of all of this damage, they are now having to inject insulin themselves, right? Either their own insulin production has begun to fall because the pancreas has been damaged and burnout and everything, or they can't control blood sugars, and so you're ha they're having to inject insulin, Right? Then there's, this term has been thrown out there, type 3 diabetes. Type 3 diabetes is specifically insulin resistance in the brain. Not necessarily in the rest of the body, but in the brain, which has been one factor implicated in dementia and Alzheimer's disease. That when your brain becomes insulin resistant, lots of bad things begin to happen and you progress down the pathways into dementia. So we talk about the same things that are helpful for type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance can, at least in a chunk of people, work to prevent or treat early dementias and Alzheimer's, 
right? Then there is, and I just you know stumbled into this a few months back, what some researchers are calling type 4 diabetes, which is a very unusual and poorly described situation. So I'm going to have to go on a small digression. Fat is inflammatory, fat, especially belly fat that causes a lot of inflammation. And I never understood particularly why, but I've gained some more insight. Fat is inflammatory because it needs to be. Without that inflammation, it can't take up and release flux, flux it's called, take up and release fat effectively from the fat cells. Okay, And what they found in type 4 diabetes, and it's been identified only in the elderly, like 70, 80-year-olds, is that, that fat, the inflammation in that fat has become dysfunctional, and they're no longer able to effectively mobilize nutrients in and out of their fat cells. And they can't, therefore, your fat is a critical controller of your blood sugar. Okay, so one of the things that's important to realize is we talk about how, you know, many people who are overweight have blood sugar control problems. Not everyone who is overweight, so you can see obese people who have normal blood sugars, and you can see that many type 2 diabetics are overweight or obese. It's a discussion, there's a lot to go into, so we won't cover all of that today. But what's counterintuitive is we ask, okay, who is likely to be in worse shape? Someone with type 2 diabetes who is fat or someone with type 2 diabetes who is thin? And most people will say the fat person is probably in worse shape than the thin person is, right? But that's not the case. When you see a type 2 diabetic who has type 2 diabetes, and is thin, like poorly controlled, obviously if they've, they were fat and they've lost weight and their blood sugar is under better control and they're doing good, it's a different story. But if you see someone who is thin and you know a poorly controlled type 2 diabetic, they're going to be in much worse shape than someone who is fat and a type 2 diabetic. And the reason is that your fat can help sock up some of that blood sugar right? So one of the reasons, one of the reasons that people become fat is that it helps to, when you have a nutrient overload, you have more blood sugar than you need, your fat basically sucks it up and pulls it out of your system, okay? If you cannot become fat because of your genetics and you're in an overloaded state, your body can't sequester or suck up that blood sugar and it's just hanging out there right so they're more likely to have suffered from more poorly controlled high blood sugar because they haven't been able to get fat to suck up some of that blood sugar right and so this leads to one of the things that commonly happens with many of the diabetes drugs is that people's blood sugar will improve on the drugs, but they'll get fatter. And that is normal and completely expected if you understand the physiology of what's going on. Because you're giving these drugs to drive down their blood sugars, and one of the ways that it's doing that, 
in the absence of diet changes and lifestyle changes, it's if you're just giving drugs, is it's forcing that person's fat to essentially suck up that blood sugar and get it out of the blood, right? So we're saying in this interesting, you know, poorly understood type 4 diabetes, the inflammation in the fat is so suppressed that the fat can no longer effectively function to suck up the blood sugar, and they can end up with diabetes, right? Now, again, only from a, from a research paper that I was looking at, and the researchers labeled it type 4 diabetes. So we've got type 1 and type 2. We've got the hybrids, which are type 1.5 and type 2.5, where you can have coexisting insulin deficiency and insulin resistance living together. We have type 3 diabetes, which is specifically insulin resistance of the brain. And we have type 4 diabetes, which is, again, a, a little oddball. Now, I've got three other types of diabetes that fit in here. So most women out there know that there is gestational diabetes or diabetes that occurs while you are pregnant, right? This would technically be a subset of type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance because we know that there's a lot of pieces that are going on here, um, and it's a whole discussion in and of itself. We know a woman's body undergoes a tremendous amount of changes during pregnancy. The important thing to remember is that if a woman gets gestational diabetes, she's at increased risk of getting type 2 diabetes later on in her life. And so, in my opinion, she needs to be proactively treated to make sure that she doesn't go down the pathway of type 2 diabetes. Okay? There's two other types of diabetes that we need to cover here. There is something known as LADA, L-A-D-A, known as latent autoimmune diabetes of the adult. Latent autoimmune diabetes of the adult. This is essentially a slow type 1 diabetes. So typically type 1 diabetes happens quickly. So it doesn't creep on over a long period of time. Kids especially go from being fine to quickly being not fine, right? But LADA happens very slowly. It can happen over a period of years. And these, again, it typically happens in adults, so you're not seeing LADA in kids. And um, they're often, often mistaken for type 2 diabetics because what you will tend to see is that blood sugars will slowly rise over time. And then, you know, people are counseled, well, uh, diet and lifestyle, maybe some metformin, um, and then they're finding that they're unable to control their blood sugars. And then someone looks deeper and finds out that the autoimmunity is present and going on for the person. Okay. Many of these are missed for a very long time. Um, and it is really a simple antibody blood test that could find these people but most doctors uh, just don't look and just don't find it, okay? The last and ninth form of diabetes is called MODY, M-O-D-Y, M-O-D-Y, known as mature onset of diabetes of the youth. Now, this is the oddball, and this one is really genetic, 
okay? While all the other types of diabetes have a genetic component, what our gene studies have shown us is that there is no strong, direct correlation between someone's genes and getting diabetes. There seem to be genes that predispose or make it more likely. We know with the autoimmunity that there are genes that predispose or make autoimmunity more likely. But MODI is one that is very, very, very directly related to genes. It's been estimated the last I looked that there were nine different genetic variants that were in, in you know, in encased in what Modi is. And essentially, they involve one of two things, the secretion of insulin. So the person can build insulin just fine in the in the pancreas. But the mechanisms that then push it out into the blood have defects, which mean they can't secrete their insulin very well. Or there are genetic uh, mutations in the insulin receptor themselves. So they can create and secrete insulin properly, but the insulin receptors don't work very well because of mutations. This can be a difficult one to figure out. Uh, candidly, I've never treated anybody with Modi, but wanted to throw it into the mix just for completeness. And you can screen, uh, you know, for these different mutations, if you think it's the case. With Modi, um, because it is so strongly genetic, you're going to see a strong family history uh, going on for people. Uh, that's going to be one of your clues, not just, um, you know, we say diabetes can run in families, but you should see it much more strongly uh, with this. So, those are the nine different types of diabetes. We only have a few minutes left here for our meeting. So I wanted to conclude that when we come back to type 1 and type 2 diabetes, they are going to share common core pieces. Uh, uh, treatment is going to share some commonalities, but they are also going to be quite different. Someone with advanced type 1 diabetes, meaning they produce little to no insulin left in their bodies is going to have to take insulin again in the form of shots or different injections or or pumps or various things um you know occasionally you'll get someone asking do i have to take insulin and the answer is yes you have to take insulin the amounts you need to take though can vary wildly okay um Type 2 diabetes, um, you know, is it reversible or manageable? We're very careful around the word cure because someone we've seen plenty of people clearly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes who through work on their diet, work on their lifestyle, work on their stress, work on their sleep, strategic supplementation, all of the pieces of holistic care either go from being full-blown type 2 diabetics to quote-unquote pre-diabetics. So again, pre-diabetes we haven't thrown in the mix, but would be you're between what is considered normal and what is considered full-blown diabetes. It's sort of this transitional stage that's being called pre-diabetes or also goes by the name syndrome X or metabolic syndrome or all different names that people have given uh, to this condition. 
Um, we have seen plenty of type 2 diabetics either become completely normal or regress from full-blown diabetes into pre-diabetes, drop the number of medications that they need. Some of them go completely medication-free. Some of them reduce the amount of medication. So type 2 diabetes, which thankfully is the overwhelming you know, type of diabetes that most people are dealing with, the insulin resistance, the good news, the bad news is that's the type of diabetes that is currently moving towards bankrupting the United States and, you know, every other country in the world. The good news is that it's extremely responsive to diet and lifestyle changes. The bad news of that is that a lot of people don't want to make those diet and lifestyle changes. The good news is that with proper coaching and proper treatment and proper education and proper support, that a lot of people can make those changes. Now, we talk about not saying the word cure because if someone goes back to a really crappy diet and lifestyle, will their diabetes come back again? And the answer is yes. We don't know a way to completely and utterly cure it such that you can go back to eating a crappy diet and having a bad lifestyle and the diabetes doesn't come back again. But essentially, we can either put it into complete remission or manage it much, much, much better than the conventional system does. Because the conventional medical system considers type diabetes in general, but type 2 diabetes to be a chronic and progressive disease, meaning that it will continue to get worse and worse over time. Standard treatment is lip service to diet and lifestyle changes. Uh, we should do a whole nother conversation on what the, the standard, you know, uh, um, recommendations are, because I believe that for the most part, they are guaranteed to make diabetics worse rather than better. But the standard is lip service paid to diet and lifestyle factors. Put metformin as the first-line drug in. Then, uh, you know, between uh, a year or a couple of years, that metformin will no longer be sufficient. Add a second drug. That will typically last for a year or two. Then add a third drug. Then that will last for another year or two. Then put the person on insulin. Then escalate the doses of insulin in order to try and manage control. And we know that by and large, um, most diabetics out there are not getting good control of their blood sugars. And when blood sugars are elevated, that causes damage to those tissues that we talked about before, the kidneys, the eyes, the blood vessels, and the nerves. The higher the blood sugar, the worse the damage. So, you know, less elevated, but not so much means less damage, but still damage and elevated more means more damage. So this is a big deal. We need to first be able to identify what type of diabetes. So again, broadly speaking, we can look at are they dealing with insulin resistance or are they dealing with insulin deficiency? If it's deficiency, they're going to need to have some amount of insulin replacement to get them to at least a, back to a normal level. But the same diet and lifestyle factors that we use to deal with insulin resistance can also reduce the amount of insulin that a type 1 or insulin-dependent person needs. So we find that a really well-treated type 1 can get by with a fraction of the amount of insulin that a, that a poorly controlled type 1 needs to have, which prevents complications and saves them a boatload of money.
because type 1 diabetes, unfortunately, is an expensive disease to have. All right, we will wrap things up today, and uh, this topic is definitely worth more conversation later. All right, folks, that wraps up another episode of the Aspire Natural Health podcast. If you enjoyed it, we hope you've subscribed to us over at iTunes. You can also check us out at our website, www.aspirenaturalhealth.com. That's Aspire as in A-S-P-I-R-E, naturalhealth.com. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash aspirenaturalhealth or check out our library of videos over at YouTube. Just go over to YouTube and punch in Aspire Natural Health. You'll find us there. So a couple great more ways you can check out our free educational materials. At Aspire Natural Health, we are experts at treating gut dysfunctions, autoimmune diseases, and other hard-to-treat cases. If you that's you or someone you know, you can always contact us and schedule a free 15-minute consult with myself and find out if we are the right fit and we can help you out with your issues. So simply check us out, check out our website. Again, that's www.aspirenaturalhealth.com or give us a call at 425-202. 7849. You can set up that free 15 minute consult. All right, folks, until we meet again, take care.